0: This month's Where Did the Road Go is brought to you by three wonderful people Allison Cook, Super Inframan, and 36 Dingo. It is also made possible by all of my Patreons. And if you want to become a patron, www.WhereDidTheRoadGo.com.
1: Transmission Start. Welcome to Where Did the Road Go. Join us as we wander off the path and explore lost history, consciousness, the paranormal, unexplained mysteries, alternative thought and much more we are present on the web at where did road go dot com now here is your host soraya
0: welcome to this edition of where did the road go and tonight i have back with me mr charles lear hi soraya and, and and you share you, you share that last name with other other people involved in the UFO field? <laughs>
2: uh, yeah, yes I do. <laughs>
0: there's o- there's other Leers.
2: Yeah, Leer and Loathing in Las Vegas. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I um, possibly very distantly related um, uh, not closely enough to uh, have any financial benefit from uh, Bill Lear's uh, wonderful inventions.
0: Mm. <laughs> um, so let's talk about Albert Bender. Okay. Because he's a, he's a fascinating character.
2: Right on. Yeah. Uh, well, Bender actually uh, first got his name in the paper uh, because he had a fascination with things creepy, uh, outré, outré. And he he lived in his father and not father and stepfather's his stepfather's attic. His mother had just di- his mother had died, and uh, so he was still there. He had a job at the Acme Shear sure Company as the chief timekeeper, and oddly, he had twenty clocks in his uh, living space, and wow. they would go off every fifteen minutes. And it was just like one part of his eccentric neighbor, uh, nature.
0: I I don't know Um, how you could stand that.
2: Ah, yeah. That's maddening. (laughs) And so, yeah. And yeah, I not sure if it was, uh, a nod to his, uh, profession as a, uh, the timekeeper at Acme Shear company, but it was just one of his many eccentric, uh, eccentricities. So he, um. He decorated his attic space with uh, skeletons and monsters and rubber snakes and rubber spiders. And he <laughs> used to uh, invite friends up to what he called his Chamber of Horrors. And he would play these uh, record uh, records of haunted house sounds. And uh, that gave him a, a great deal of pleasure. Uh, but it got the interest of a local paper up in Bridgeport, Connecticut. Uh, The Sunday Herald, and they put an article out just covering his whole, uh, you know, covering his chamber of horrors. And uh, so that's the first time he came to public attention. But then he started getting interested in flying saucers. So he put an ad in Amazing Stories, Uh, not an ad. He put out a a notice in Amazing Stories saying, you know, he's looking for investigators. And Gray Barker actually contacted him. No, it wasn't. It wasn't amazing uh, stories. It was Other Worlds. Okay. The December nineteen fifty two issue of Other Worlds. So Gray Parker contacted him, and he wanted to become a member of the uh, International Flying Saucer Bureau, as Bender called it. And uh, Bender uh, said, "Well, why don't you be the state representative for West Virginia?" So this uh, cute little organization quickly went international, so truly was the International Flying Saucer Bureau, and it was the first to do so. He put out his first publication of uh, Space Review in October 1952. And, you know, it took off from there. Not a whole lot of great investigations, but, you know, lists of uh, stories. And in any case, uh, it didn't last more just a little over a year. Uh, actually, October 1953, the space review that he, he, he called his... Uh, Fellow members and said, Barker in particular, and said, look, uh, don't don't accept any more memberships until you read the October issue of uh, Space Review in 1953. And in that Space Review, he had this uh, announcement uh, under uh, the headline Statement of Importance. And it goes, uh, the mystery of flying saucers is no longer a mystery. The source is already known, but any information about this is being withheld by orders from a higher source. <laughs> we would like to print the full story in space review, but because of the nature of the information, we're sorry that we have been advised in the negative. We advise those engaged in saucer work to please be very cautious. So <laughs> and that was it. And he shut down the... The Bureau, he put out a few more issues of space review for members who didn't want refunds, but saucers are not even mentioned, and uh, it's all about space. Uh, and then he, he closed up shop. So his fellow members wanted to know what was going on, and he came up with the story that he had been visited by three men in black who told him to quit looking into the saucers, and that was it. And that's all he would say. He wouldn't uh, tell them, you know. You said you 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 know you know the mystery, and, but he he just that was it. He he got out of the saucer biz after that, until later in nineteen sixty two, when uh, through Barker's saucerian press he published Flying Saucer and the Three Men, and in this version, the three men in black are three. Creatures with glowing eyes from the planet Kaik, K a z i k. They they. He would feel in in the book. He describes feeling a sharp pain in his head, uh, and then these three men in black would appear. So he also describes uh, having uh, three space maidens come in and uh, rub them all over with uh, what he. With some kind of gel, I think it was supposed to be some sort of uh, antibiotic uh, for space travel. as they took him up in his shit in their <laughs> ship, uh, and he describes himself being stiff as a board, <laughs> 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 and they they rubbed him all over. No part of my body was spared, <laughs> so. Uh, and needless to say, the uh, the uh, the book was uh, met with a bit of dubiousness. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, you know what's inter- uh, what's interesting. I mean, that kind of started the Men in Black thing to a degree too.
2: Oh, absolutely, yeah, and yeah, now, and Barker uh, Barker went on to play that up in uh, the Silver Bridge, his book about the uh, the things going down in uh, West Virginia during the Mothman mystery, uh, which he actually put out before Keel's uh, The Mothman Prophecies. So, yeah, both Barker and Kiel really played up the men in black thing. But, you know, the, the, Kiel uh, actually claimed that, uh, you know, he was getting real reports from people being visited by men in black. So it's one of those weird things, you know, maybe, you know, created by Bender. And then uh, if the phenomena is reflective, uh, men in black uh, became a real thing.
0: Right, right. Well, and, and it's fairly sure, certain that the military played that up as well.
2: Yeah, yeah, definitely.
0: I mean, they have um, something there where they can interrogate people and make it seem like it's not them.
2: Mm-hmm, yep. But Bender went on to form the uh, the Max Steiner uh, Appreciation Society. Yeah, Max Steiner was a film composer, and so he he was out of the saucer biz. He lived to the to a ripe old age. I think he died maybe in the... Uh, it might have been as late as the 90s, hmm. uh, but... Um, yeah, I think he's uh, buried in California. And uh, his middle name remains a mystery, at least to me. It, it, I looked on his, uh, you can, uh, often when I'm looking for middle names, you can find him on uh, Find a Grave, and his grave marker still has Albert K. Bender. So yeah. I I speculate in the book that maybe his middle name was Kayak. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, you know, uh, my, my occasional co-host, Wren, had made the the connection between the the three men that he uh he sees in certain occult experiences where you enter where you interact with these three dark entities and he often wondered if if that was actually what bender experienced was this sort of occultic uh, sort of uh uh experience but he just attributed it to aliens you know
2: so, so- yeah if you if It's it you know if people I don't know. My me personally, when people speak seriously about Albert K. Bender actually actually encountering men in black and being into uh you know, somebody claimed to have seen an altar set up in his uh, in a picture of his attic space. Mm. If you listen to uh was to give a sp- speech at a um I forget which UFO convention it was, but he sent a tape along and you can hear that tape and you hear his scrolly little voice, uh, You'll think twice. <laughs> uh, I mean, he just he has fact- this really nasal voice like this. I never gave any money to you. you know, uh-huh. he, ta- he, he has this great story about how after meeting the men in black, he started having mysterious powers. Uh, and that, you know, <laughs> people like the, the, this guy... He he loaned a friend some money and then the friend avoided him. And then he approached and said, You know, why are you avoiding me? And, you know, why aren't you, uh, where's the money you owe me, basically? And the guy said, I never, and he goes, "Uh, I never gave any money to you. That that audio uh, clip. Go ahead. I'm saying, Yeah, I never got any money from you. And then the guy, uh, he, he wished ill upon the guy and the guy got into a car crash and, uh, blood to death and uh, nobody it, it was hidden in the woods off the road and nobody could see him so he died a horrible death and he tells a few stories like that so uh,
0: Aaron Gullius uses that as the opening for the saucer life I don't know if he still uses it he was using it at one point
2: yeah yeah I, that, that's where I, uh, I'll, I'll absolutely give it to him that's where I, uh, I, I first heard the story <laughs> <laughs> but I yeah, the, the, the tape is pretty hysterical but you know <laughs>
0: So let's talk about Amy Mitchell and Jacques Vallée. They, they, they pop up around this, this time, too. By the way, your book, for anyone who missed it from uh, last week, is called The Flying Saucer Investigators. Mm-hmm. And it is out everywhere, and it is a very good book. I thoroughly enjoyed it. A, so uh, what's this published
2: through? Uh, Flying Disc Press. Okay. Yeah, that's uh, Philip Mantle's uh, pub- uh, publishing company. So Philip Mantle just... Uh, um, Fairly recently published the book, uh, Calvin Parker's book. Oh, okay. And did very well with that. So I think it's uh, Aimé Michel.
0: Yeah, uh, I think so.
2: Okay. 1954, there was a, a French wave where there were all these humanoid reports coming out. This got the uh, the attention of the American saucer community. Uh, it's really the first time, you know, humanoid reports weren't that widespread. And then afterwards, the uh, American report investigators uh, started looking into the more. And then, uh, right in 1955, America had the uh, Kelly Hopkinsville incident with the uh, Kelly Hopkinsville goblins. Yeah. So, yeah, humanoids really got on the map in 1954 from uh, France. And at the time, uh, Amy Michel had uh, just published a book. The Truth About Flying Saucers, I'm not going to uh, mangle the French title of it.
1: That's <laughs> fine. Uh, uh,
2: but it was, yeah, it was published right before the onslaught of the reports. Uh, so he was France's UFO expert, at the flying saucer expert at the time. And he was the go-to guy. Also at the time, young Jacques Vallée became interested in uh, flying saucers. He had had a sighting with his mother uh, that he writes about. I think he wrote about it in... Um, uh forbidden science uh yeah a classic saucer with a uh, bubble dome on it yeah and
0: if i remember right a bunch of people from his uh village also saw it it wasn't just him
2: yeah oh actually yeah that actually shows up in uh jeffrey uh kripal's book uh, authors of the impossible that's where i got that story from
0: okay i think it i think it is in forbidden science as well
2: yeah i, I would imagine so yeah there were. Uh, it. It really started with a guy, uh, Marius de Wilde, reported seeing two uh, short guys, and uh, he, he flashed a light, and he thought he saw a reflection off of a a helmet, a glass helmet, with a uh, a head that seemed uh, especially large. Then uh, they got into the side of an object. A blinding light came out. In the original, the first newspaper articles, he reported being paralyzed by fear. Uh, The object shot out of the, you know, shot off, and that was it. Uh, But as the story went from paper to paper, paralyzed by fear became him being paralyzed by the beam of light. Right. But, yeah, they— I actually don't talk about this part in the book. They checked for uh, evidence and found some like deep indentations and some railroad ties uh, about where he said the uh, saucer was. To make them, it would have had to have been a. a they concluded it would have had to have been an, uh, a good deal of weight. So yeah, the the, this, the things took off and uh, people were reporting them all over the country.
0: And one of the things you talk about, too, though, is that the, the, the uf- ufologists in, in the U.S. weren't interested in humanoids so much, uh, but you had tons of sightings in France, but the only stuff they were really interested in hearing was the, the actual lights in the sky type of stuff.
2: Jim and Coral Lorenzen and APRO actually talked to them immediately. They had no problem with humanoid reports. They liked them, as long as they didn't talk.
0: <laughs> yeah, and yeah. another weird, weird uh, line to draw.
2: Yeah, well, it's because I mean uh, the the contactees were really turning what had started into some, uh, you know, a, a serious mystery into a circus. You know, the the serious saucerologists uh, really wanted to keep their distance, not be uh, part of the laughing stock. Kehoe at uh, NICAP, National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena. Um, yeah, Kehoe really, really stayed away from humanoid reports uh, to his uh, detriment. His membership hammered him constantly for cases he would ignore. Yeah, the uh, Jim and Crow Lorenzens uh, took right to it. And also uh, Civilian Saucer uh, Intelligence, New York, a very early group as well, that approached it with a very scientific, they were a very serious group, pre presaging groups like uh, SCU, now the... Uh, but scientific coalition for you ufo- uh, ufology or now a U you, you apology. Um,
1: <laughs>
2: uh, but uh, you know, they, they, they really set the model for that. Uh, they actually translated Emmy uh, Michelle's books into English. Uh, and one in particular was uh, flying saucers in the straight line mystery. Uh, Michelle perceived a pattern uh, uh, that sightings of, uh, were reported, if he marked them on the map, they seemed to form straight lines. He called this orthotony. And he surmised from this that they were doing an organized survey in a grid pattern. And as a flap would go on, it would all of a sudden, the the pattern would go away and it would go random. And he hypothesized that uh, this was because they were doing some uh, follow up uh, visits you know spots uh they they just wanted to revisit and then that would make the uh, the pattern appear random so the, they were follow-up surveys after the organized grid search survey mm. grid pattern survey
0: i wonder i wonder if anyone uh looked into that and in the incidence of fault lines in france because uh paul Devereux showed at least in the uk that mm-hmm. ufo sightings tended to follow fault lines
2: Oh, that's yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I, I'm still, you know, think the the jury should be out on uh, earthquake lights. I think there's a lot to that, and I'm, you know, I'm in the geology, and oh. putting that putting that much pressure on uh, quartz, uh, especially if you got a really big vein of quartz. I can imagine that's piezoelectric. Yeah, I think there's something to that, but nobody's proven it.
0: Yeah, but there's little doubt that there are earthquake lights. I mean, they're seen pretty consistently prior to earthquakes. Um, but I mean, there might also be something to do with plasma consciousness in there too. Mm-hmm. I mean, cause you got stuff like the Marfa lights and things like that, that seem to behave as if they're conscious.
2: Hmm. Uh, but, uh, Hestelen, I don't think they got any kind of data like that. Did they? Uh, who did? Hestelen? I don't know. Oh, the Hestelen lights. Uh, they were actually, I think, uh, a, a, Hestelen, I think it's, uh, Norway. Oh, okay. Uh, uh, they, they they had a university set up a study there. that They got some really amazing pictures uh, with polarized light to try and examine. It's been a while since I looked into that.
0: Hmm. Um, but we were still seeing in that time period a lot more humanoid encounters in France than in the U.S., right?
2: Uh, yeah, but… Uh, like I said in 1955 you you get the Kelly Hopkinsville goblins and then there's a that I've got a whole chapter about that where yeah. uh, Isabel Davis and uh, Ted Blocher Blocher I I don't know how to pronounce his name properly B L O E C H E R they put out a publication in uh, 1973 all about uh, humanoid reports in the states uh, starting in 1955 So huh.
0: Okay, let's look at. Uh, oh, well, this is one of the things I noticed, and it, it starts with Kenneth Arnold and the flying saucer thing. But how much do you think that the errors in reporting, like saying, you know, nicknaming them flying saucers and stuff, have affected our perception of what UFOs are?
2: Misreporting,
0: right? Where they like like the the flying saucer. There was another thing you mentioned in here that they reported, and it wasn't actually what was was uh, seen. And I didn't make oh. a note of, as to what it was. So, but I mean, like flying saucers took off, even though what Kenneth Arnold saw were V-shaped things.
2: Yeah, and uh, yeah, very early on in 1947, anything was everything was a disc, whether yeah. it was. Uh, you know people were bringing in radar targets, uh, six pointed radar targets, and they called it a disc in the press. So yeah, I'm sure that had an influence. Uh, but you wanted to uh, oh, the, one uh, thing you wanted to talk about was the the, the law. Oh yeah, but uh, <laughs> in France.
0: the the other th- I, I did make a note because um, you said uh, as the story made its way from newspaper to newspaper, you just mentioned this, the wild being paralyzed by fear turned into the being paralyzed by a beam of light, and then you see that sort of perpetrating other encounters after that, and I, and it may very well be the reflective nature of this phenomena, as you say. Hmm. Uh, but it's yeah. interesting that these things have changed. You know, just word of mouth. You know, it it changes it. And then it becomes like the accepted explanation of what people saw, even though it wasn't.
2: Yeah, yeah. yeah, It's folklore, really. A good deal of this is folklore. That's why I I like the subject. It's history. It's folklore. It's mysticism. You know, like I've said before, you you can look at it through many different pairs of glasses.
0: Uh, And yeah, the law in France. Let's talk about that because that's great.
2: Yeah, uh, in October of 1954, the uh, the mayor of the town of uh, Chateau neuf du Pop, he passed a law prohibiting flying saucers flying over, landing, or taking off in community territory. Uh, <laughs> any – Article 2 states, any aircraft known as flying saucer or flying cigar, which should land on the territory of the community – Will be immediately held in custody, and that responsibility in, was put in uh, Article Three on the forest officer and the city policeman. So, <laughs> if a saucer landed, they, the city policeman or the forest officer uh, had the responsibility of uh, <laughs> taking them to task.
0: Yeah, and I'm, and I'm sure that went very well. <laughs> um, one of the things when but you but it's uh, still on the
2: books. That's what's funny about it. I, <laughs> recently read an article about that well i say recently i um, i'm an old man so recently could have been five years ago
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, five years ago seems like like yesterday i think to most people because of the pandemic yeah that sense of time has just got warped yep um so uh, i did have a note about hopkinsville um one of the things you say is greenwell said that he's that several he and several men did see a luminous spot in the grass where one of the creatures were reportedly shot but it was only visible from a certain angle and not detectable when viewed at close range and i don't think i've heard that detail before and that's really fascinating
2: yeah that's pretty cool it's really interesting
0: because um, that's not something that it sounds like someone would make up you know they might say oh i saw a glowing spot in the grass but that you could only see at a certain angle and you couldn't see it when you got up close.
2: Yeah. That was the, uh, with the, the chief of police of, uh, Hopkinsville, uh, Russell Greenwell and Russell Greenwell was actually open to the whole thing. Cause he had a, had a sighting earlier himself. Uh, I think he was, uh, vacationing at a lake with his wife and, uh, he, he saw a mysterious object there. So when this was dropped in his lap, he was actually woken up in the middle of the night because the, uh, uh, the families uh, that were besieged by these creatures uh, at a moment where things were quiet, they they ran in a panic, and drove down in a panic, and two car- piled into two cars and drove to the police station in uh, a panic. And uh, the guy on duty there was so, you know, impressed by how freaked out these people were that he called Russell Greenwell and got him out of bed, uh, and he came down to the station, and then they all went on mass with a whole bunch of other townsfolk and uh, went to the uh went to the uh farmhouse glenny langford's uh farmhouse and uh did their investigation but uh yeah i'm looking for the part
0: uh, uh, this, this is also where the term little green men comes from is hopkinsville
2: yeah i, I at that uh i've, I've seen a speculation that it's because of uh the name kelly kelly green mm. kelly green men kind of uh Got that going? They they reported they were silver.
0: Yeah, but again, this is another one of those things that like they reported it silver, but yet it turns into little green men. V shaped objects become saucers.
2: Yeah, yeah, it, it's 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 pretty funny. Well, it's interesting. I I shouldn't say funny. It's interesting that because
0: uh, people don't go back to the original sources, they just kind of go with the you know the 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 most popular view of whatever subject you know whatever we're talking about you actually go back to the original sources on all this stuff
2: Yeah that's what I, I I've been doing that I, I write the, the the weekly blog for uh, Martin Willis over at podcast UFO and yeah I, I it started I had, it became an obsession with me I, I've found now I know where to look but you know I get to a point of say, like, oh where did this come from? You know, yeah. and uh, and oftentimes you get you know totally contradictory elements of the report, and you know there, there are three different versions of the story. It's like, well, which one's right? And in order to find that, I you know I I got obsessed with getting back as close to the original source as I could, and uh, yeah, but the, where the, when you do that, you 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 get a clearer picture of what the witnesses actually said they uh, experienced, and. It's still, you know, it it's still a great story. It just as fascinating without all the embellishment. Yeah. I think far more fascinating.
0: And, and that's what I was getting at before, like how much the UFO field, like, is made up of things that are embellishments as much as stuff that actually happened.
2: Yeah. Yeah, so that's, you know, I, I like approaching it as an, an historian because, you know, that's, this is the stuff that's actually on the record. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, in the uh, investigators' files, in the news- original newspaper articles, uh, police reports, Air Force files, etc.
0: Have you ever found uh, like a bigger story that you weren't able to find the original uh, stuff for?
2: Um, I, I had trouble with the Japan stories. I I got stuck in Japan. There were some really cool stories out of Japan that I was, it's not in the book. These are some recent blogs I wrote. Uh, One interesting, uh, a guy claimed to have uh, encountered, uh, opened his, heard some noise. His dog was barking and he opened his front door and there standing in front of him was a a creature that looked like it was completely covered in a uh, transparent vinyl suit. It had a head and right under the head, just like a cephalopod. It had four tentacles. It stood on two of them and used the other two as arms. Oh. Uh, and I thought, oh, this is cool. And the guy got, you know, claimed to have been abducted. And then, like, he, he broke away, and then he was thrown out of the craft. And then got messages to go to a, a certain mountain, Mount Kitaro, I think it was. And he brought two friends, told them they were going hiking. Uh, and then he broke off from them and... Uh, had a rendezvous with a saucer that uh, took him uh, up to uh, up to Saturn and uh, then uh, to Titan. A uh, creature gave him a rock, and then he <laughs> gave the rock to uh, local authorities to be examined. And they, they said it was um, a mineral from uh, some of the local quarries, and he was ridiculed for it. Yeah, uh, but then he, then he later claimed to uh, have the the ab- develop the abilities to teleport himself and move things with his mind, spoon bending, and you know, I was like, oh, this is fascinating. Uh, you know, it's one of those things where like maybe something really happened to him yeah. initially, and then later he embellished it, and because uh, he was just a simple farmer, and uh, getting that attention might have just you know blown his head up and. uh you know, caused him to, you know, make the story bigger than it was.
0: Sure, sure. But I, it was. What what a, year was that?
2: I think a seventy-five, if okay. I remember correctly. Uh, but a famous Japanese researcher, I think his name was Ninichi or Kinichi. He examined, you know, he was reported to be the the guy who investigated the case. And recently in Fukushima, they opened up a UFO museum and the International UFO uh, UFO Research Organization. So I reached out to them, say, because they have all his archives. Uh, Kenichi Arai, that's his name. Uh, so they have Kenichi Arai's archives there. So I reached out to them and I said, "You look, I'm writing this story. I'd like to, you know, know if you have any." Kind of documentation or anything from Arai, and you know they made a big deal in the press of being you know an international research organization, and the reply was a form letter completely in Japanese. So, in the uh, spirit of international cooperation.
0: So, so you weren't actually able to find the source.
2: No, no, that I, 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 you know, I just had, I had to write. You know, I I wrote wrote it like that. I said, you know, this is a. Uh, basically this is a great story uh this is the researcher i tried and uh, the, 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 these gentlemen weren't of much help so I,
0: I and what happens in a lot of those cases you see it a lot with poltergeist cases is that the person has something real happen to them but then they like the attention so when the when the phenomena stops they start faking it or they start making stuff up
2: yeah, what were those two sisters? Uh, the uh, original uh, oh
0: Enfield is that what you're uh, thinking of?
2: No, no, no. It was it was earlier. They were a couple of sisters who claimed to be uh, communicating and uh,
0: oh, uh, uh, the, the Knox. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, oh man, yeah, that was right up here too.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was. Yeah, that was like right at the uh, the birth of uh, the spiritualism yes. movement.
0: Um, yeah, totally uh, yeah
2: That they, they, they were basically, they were caught faking, it, but a lot of people have speculated that, you know, maybe they were seeing something, experiencing something real. And then later,
0: I don't, I don't uh, know if, I don't know if they were caught. The one girl admitted faking it, but the other ones said that they didn't.
2: Well, apparently they were cracking their uh, foot knuckles.
0: Yeah. Which is impressive in its own right.
2: <laughs> yes. Yes. But, you know, so the speculation is that, you know, when they were put on the spot, to uh, perform, uh, you know they 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 were forced to fake it.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah, but you
2: know that that that's just an endless loop.
0: Right. Exactly. Um. So, uh, one of the stories I really liked in here, uh, and I don't know if you, if you don't remember it, I actually copied it here. But it's uh, a guy named Blochier, B L O E C H E R.
2: Yeah, yeah. Ted. Uh, Yeah, Ted Blochier. Or Blocher, yeah. His uh, he he was in the business for quite a while. He uh, joined KUFOS after uh, Center for UFO Studies. After he started off as a member of uh, civilian saucer intelligence, and he after that folded, he 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 stuck with it and he joined the uh, Center for UFO Studies as well. Yeah, he uh, he was friends with uh, Leonard Stringfield. Uh, and Leonard Stringfield was getting reports, and he went to visit Stringfield, and they, they had all these uh, up in uh, Cincinnati. He and Stringfield went and uh, investigated uh, humanoid reports uh, throughout Cincinnati. He was also a co-author with Les Mebane and David Webb of uh, the uh, 1979 QFOS publication, The Humanoid Catalog. A- and his archives are in the, uh, the uh, New York Public Library, the main branch in Manhattan with uh, Patience and Fortitude, to t- the uh, two li- lions in front of it, the famous one. So his archives are stored there. And, and but, the, yeah, I'm sorry, what was the story you were interested in? The story
0: in? was the one with a guy named uh, Robert Honeycutt. Oh, yeah. I have it here yeah. if you don't remember it.
2: No, I got it yeah i'd uh um oh yeah those are the really cool creatures yeah uh yeah he uh came he thought there were uh, three guys praying he was driving uh and off to the side of the road he sees these three figures one of them was holding up his hands and it, he had something in it it seemed these uh, sparks were jumping from one side from one hand to the other and then he bent down and it seemed to uh, tie it around his ankle uh but they Described their faces as, um, they had these, uh, wrinkles that ran across the, uh, front of their foreheads and their mouths he described like frogs. And he, they had this one big bulge on, uh, their right side and their right arms seemed to be longer to accommodate this bulge. So yeah, some really, uh, really strange creatures. Uh, he was, uh, freaked out about it enough, uh, that he, uh, he drove to the house of a uh, i think that's the one that's the one yeah he he, he drove to uh yeah the chief of police yes. yeah 4 in the morning he woke the chief of police up to tell him what he'd experienced the chief of police was impressed enough that he he went out to investigate himself
0: and so. did he fu- he didn't but there was nothing there when they went back right
2: yeah uh, no nothing
0: um yeah that one i love that one because that again that doesn't sound like something someone would make up
2: yeah, it's just so weird. Uh, the, the creatures don't match anything anybody had reported before, and it's so specific. And then another thing, too, that kept coming up throughout these reports were uh, uh, smells. Yeah. Uh, which shows up a lot. I think uh, Josh Cutchin, uh, Yes. didn't he? Yeah, he wrote a whole thing about smells. The Brimstone uh, Deceit. Yeah, so this uh, this one was uh, fresh-cut alfalfa with a slight trace of almonds. Mm. Uh but you, know, you also had you know, uh, bad smells like sulfur and uh, all the usuals.
0: Yeah, jo- Josh found the most common smell was that of sulfur, which, I mean, it's the smell of decay, which makes me wonder if whatever creates these things, like whatever energy they're using to manifest here, immediately starts decaying.
2: Yeah, who knows?
0: Um, so you had another one from Blosher uh, with two boys wrestling on the lawn.
2: Oh, yeah, that's this one. Yeah, uh, that this is all uh, in the, uh, the the publication, uh, the Kufos publication, uh, the 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 Kelly Hop 1955 Kelly Hopkinsville incident, and uh, now the Kelly. I'm gonna find it. <laughs> the uh, yeah, close encounters at Kelly at Kelly and others of 1955. So Isabel Davis wrote about Kelly, and uh, she was an awesome investigator. Her investigation is absolutely thorough with uh, documentation from the Air Force, maps of the property, diagrams, and just, you know, really, really thorough investigation. Uh, super impressive, especially for that time. And uh, Blocher wrote uh, the, the thing on Others of 1955. So, so the Honeycutt case from, comes from uh, uh portion of the book so yeah the 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 kids this was in california and this was a just really really strange case um trying to yeah yeah
0: i have it here if you want me to read it
2: no they 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 were wrestling on the lawn and they saw a uh yeah first thing they saw was a hemispherical object uh It became fully round and trailed rays as it moved. Then the other kids started seeing it, and then they started seeing other objects, like uh, round like basketballs, uh, all kinds of different colors, red, blue, orange. uh, This is most are silver. And uh, when they appeared or disappeared, a musical ping each time. And when they were visible, they were semi-transparent. And they started seeing entities as well. Uh, one three and a half feet tall, transparent, big mouth, red mouth, and red eyes, and they started. Uh, they panicked, started running around screaming, and uh mother came out and ran into one of the kids, uh, and she didn't. She described seeing nothing like uh, what they described, but at one point, a, a seven-year-old boy, uh, got transfixed by one of the uh, the objects, um, by the beauty of it. And he started walking towards it, and uh, two of the older boys tripped him and uh, held him down. Uh, and then another boy saw a child sized arm 20 feet away beckoning. Then a creature wearing satin like clothing appeared, and it spoke to a boy named Ronnie and told him to climb a tree where he would be picked up 15 minutes from them. And he and another boy climbed the tree and waited with fixed stares. The other kids uh, were begging them to come down. They said, a craft approached with a fixed outer rim and a rotating center, and riding around the rim were little men, and the craft made a swishing sounds. Uh, the kids got a garden hose and uh, uh, turned it on the kids, uh, the, the boys, uh, to get them down from the tree. One kid climbed down. Uh, the other one slid off to a nearby roof and walked off the edge and landed on his head. Uh, said, unhurt, uh, in the report from uh, Blochure. Uh, this was also uh, made the uh, the local newspapers as well, and he had no memory of what happened to him, and he didn't believe the others when he they tried to uh, describe the events to him. Uh, Blocher's, uh assessment was that there is lack of sufficient information to come to any final conclusions.
0: Yeah, it's kind of the definition of high strangeness right there.
2: Oh my, yeah, that's that's a that's an amazing case.
0: Uh, and the fact that the mother now was what was the mother seeing? Was she seeing something, but not what they were seeing?
2: I, I that wasn't really clear. I don't think she, uh, she saw anything.
0: Yeah, that's even more fascinating because yeah. clearly there was something going on with the boys.
2: Yeah, I I think later I actually saw the newspaper article after I had uh, written the book, but yeah, I didn't I didn't get any uh, more information than than this.
0: Okay. um— I wrote down the Philadelphia experiment. I don't remember what you covered about this in your book.
2: Oh, yeah, that was, uh, yeah, I think that goes all the way back to um, uh, Morris K. Jessup uh, during the, he was one of the founders of NICAP, believe it or not. Morris K. Jessup, uh, T. Townsend Brown, who claimed to have uh, developed anti-gravity, he was actually the first director before Kehoe. Uh, the uh, one of the rumors is that uh, he was ousted because the uh, board members thought he might be siphoning money from NICAP towards his anti-gravity research. So they booted him and put in Kehoe. But you know, when I uh, mentioned uh, Morris K. Jessup, I had to. I, I I felt obligated to go further to explain Morris K. Jessup and, and talk about the Philadelphia experiment that really came about uh, because uh, the Navy. Uh, I think it was the. Was it the Office of Naval Intelligence? Um, Yeah, the Office of Naval Research received a copy of Morris K. K. Jeffs' book, the uh, 1955 book, The Case for the UFO. Uh, The main thing in that book is that he was uh, considering possible sources of uh, power and propulsion for UFOs. So um, a copy was sent to the Office of Naval Research uh, anonymously, and sections were high Highlighted, and there were annotations in the margins with three different ink colors to make it look like it was uh, it looked like it was written by three different individuals. Mm-hmm. Um, they seemed to be uh, concerned uh, with how much Jessup knew, uh, particularly about anti-gravity and electromagnetism. Then Jessup started uh, getting letters signed Carl Allen and Carl's Miguel Allende over the. Uh, the address, and he claimed to, the writer claimed to witness an experiment in Philadelphia, which uh, has become famous by uh, our friend, uh, by Mister. Bill Moore, that a, a Navy destroyer, the USS Eldridge, uh, was teleported to Norfolk, Virginia, and back. And when it got back to Philadelphia, the uh, the, the the story goes that you know their crew fused to the decks, the the metal decks, uh, and just all kinds of awfulness and ugliness uh ultimately uh the guy's name was uh, carl allen uh, he actually in 1969 walked into april headquarters and admitted the letters were a hoax and then later he recanted <laughs> uh, <laughs> jim mosley found him in prescott arizona in 1977 and he wrote a letter to gray barker Uh, Barker convinced Allen to come to Clarksburg and he put him up at the uh, Clarksburg Sheraton and he interviewed him on tape with Mosley present. And on the tape, uh, Allen speaks as if the Philadelphia event is an historical fact, but he admits to writing all the annotations in the book. So, and that tape is in the uh, Gray Barker collection at the Clarksburg Harrison Public Library. And yeah, that's the story of the Philadelphia Experiment.
0: I, I remember John Keel in some talk or something saying how the people, who, the surviving, you know, uh, sailors from that ship, get together every year and laugh about all the different conspiracy uh, stories that are out about what happened at, at the Philadelphia Experiment.
2: <laughs> well, apparently, the the ship wasn't even docked in Philadelphia at the time. I think that's been proven.
0: So. But it's it's one of those things that people love to hear about. It's 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 one of those things that really has staying power. That story,
2: it's a good yarn.
0: Um, let's see. I took a snippet here that says uh, the Loveland case had exceptional witnesses, including a sheriff and a fire chief. Do you know what I'm talking about here?
2: Yeah. Uh, okay. That's true. Uh. Yeah. The. But yeah the the what had happened it it started off. In Leveland, Texas, they uh, they have a harvest season, and uh, during the harvest season, everybody's busy and working overnight and late at night. So, these two, uh, um, I think they were uh, a Spanish Spanish workers. Um, they reported seeing a. Uh, they actually called the police and reported that they saw this huge object fly over them. When it did so, their their car went out and. That was a repeated uh, report uh, throughout uh, the level and events. But yeah, among the witnesses were a fire chief and a... Uh, I'm having trouble finding it here.
0: Uh, including a sheriff and a fire chief, a careful science-based investigation could have helped NICAP's argument for the extraterrestrial hypothesis. Unfortunately, NICAP's man on the scene was James A. Lee. Lee was an eccentric who had his own ideas about the nature of the universe due to decades of studying all sort of... Uh, esoteric books. He believed that space was made up of ether, that the vortex of the ethers held all things on earth and that tornadoes were caused by leftover energy from God's creation of the earth.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and he, yeah, he also, he, he drove around uh, George Van Tassel's, uh, uh, space convention in a Cadillac with all kinds of electronic equipment. He claimed to uh, be able to monitor any uh, aliens that might be, uh, eavesdropping
0: yeah so eccentric to say the least oh yeah (laughs) um there were the sightings of father william booth uh william booth gill this was in australia if i remember right
2: boy night papua papua new guinea
0: oh new guinea okay
2: yeah but yeah he um he was uh a missionary from the australian anglican church okay that's Uh, where the australian part comes in Yeah, and he was uh, uh, the head of a mission in uh, Boyanai, Papua New Guinea. Uh, And then it was a territory of Australia. So he reported on uh, April 9th. uh, At first, he he, he was in a boat. He saw something in the mountains. He saw light. And uh, he thought it was uh, from a a tilly lamp, which is a high-pressure kerosene lantern. And he thought it was strange that someone would be that high up. Um, Then he looked up. Light was gone. Then he saw it appear about a mile east of where it had been. So he he considered that he might have seen a flying saucer. Uh, then on uh, June twenty first, uh, his assistant Stephen Moy, he reported seeing an object shaped like an upside down saucer over the mission. So uh, Gil, you know, kind of blew all this stuff off. It's an oh, it could be just natural phenomenon." And he wrote a letter. To uh, a friend of his, the uh, Reverend David Jury, and he included a report of Stephen Moy's sighting, and said he does not doubt that these things, in quotes, exist. But he says his, you know, my simple mind still requires physical evidence before I can accept the from outer space theory. And he signed the letter doubting Wimp, doubting William. Hmm. Uh, but he didn't get a chance to re- re- send the letter before he sent the letter. On uh, Friday, June 26, 1959, uh, 6.45 p.m., a a huge light caught his eye. And he called to a student, uh, asked him what he saw. The student confirmed. uh, And he said, you know, go get uh, Stephen Moy. Uh, When Stephen Moy came back, he came back with a whole group of people. And they all had this sighting. And Gil had the foresight to go out and get a notepad, and he wrote a log uh, detailing everything they saw. What he reports in his log was seeing four, uh, what he calls men, on top of the saucer. And ultimately, it, they, they, they appeared to be working on it. They would go in, go out, and in his log, you know, he uh, wrote down the the order in which they would appear and then uh, go, seem to go back into the saucer. Uh, well, at one point, the, they they went in and then they came out later uh and uh, they they saw the saucer there again and one of the uh somebody started waving and the creatures <laughs> waved back so you have all these witnesses claiming that you know they waved at the saucer men and the saucer men waved back <laughs> yeah. and this made the papers big time international this actually uh you know Everybody, like uh, Apro uh, Jim and Coral Lorenzen at Apro, were super impressed. Ray Barker was super impressed. Everybody was, you know, all the investigators were writing about this in their publications, and NICAP didn't touch it. And NICAP, uh, their membership, uh, wrote them some uh, nasty, wrote some nasty letters, and what uh, one in particular says what. Donald Kehoe will not accept the word of a man of the cloth? (laughs) How close does a saucer have to get before, you know, how close can a saucer get before uh, Kehoe dismisses it? Uh, So, you know, there there were two things, like there was was an instance uh, where Kehoe did report on, uh, I think it was a, a mother and daughter seeing a saucer that was fairly close, but not as close as this one, and certainly with not uh, little men waving at them. Right. Oh, they weren't little. They mm-hmm. did. But uh, what was really interesting about this case to me was how well Gill investigated it. Uh, one thing he did is when he was looking at it, he spread out his uh, thumb and pinky and held out his hand in the, to a certain distance where the saucer fit right in there. And then with his, uh, with his students, you know, estimated how far he thought the craft was from them, uh, found a, a building that fit between his thumb and forefinger and uh, his thumb and pinky pasted off and uh, got the size of the building. So he estimated the size of the uh, saucer based on that. Uh, so you, you have his log and you have that uh, also estimating the size of the humanoids uh so it's really interesting it was really interesting to me that you know he took the time to investigate this uh pretty thoroughly and you know
0: yeah and became what, i was gonna concert. say why do you think kehoe just ignored it
2: because it had humanoids <laughs>
0: uh it's such a it's, it's such a weird uh like uh boundary to to go by i mean there's if you believe these things are, did Kehoe believe they were extraterrestrial?
2: Yeah. He, he wrote, uh, his, his second book was flying saucers from outer space. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so why would you, you know, yeah, I mean, obviously there's, if they're from outer space, they have to have, you know, people in them of some sorts. Yeah.
2: yeah that was the constant criticism he got. Uh, he, he even had trouble with the, uh, the Hill case big hmm. time. The, you know, he put it on the, the back page of uh, the UFO Investigator. It came up as part of uh, part of an article on uh, people basically getting injured. Yeah, it was the article in the 1962 article: UFOs cause panic, one death. The the Hill story is just part of that article, and the Hill story hadn't really broke by then. Yeah, that was it. Didn't break until 1965 uh, when the journalist uh, John H. Luttrell published their story without their approval in the uh, October 25th, 1965 Boston Traveler. Ah. Uh, yeah. Then UPI picked it up and uh, it, it blew up. Uh, he he has a subcommittee actually uh, looked into that, uh, a NICAP subcommittee. That's what he called uh, little groups all over the country. It was a really cool network. But yeah, the uh, in the, the once the story broke, uh, having uh, taken the taken their licks. A November, December 1965 investigator had this story on page five. And I wrote, um, the Hill story is dangerously close to those of the contactees, but it received a lot of publicity. And it seems that NICAP is reporting it despite having misgivings. And in the article, it's pointed out that NICAP will report on the story quote, in line with our new investigation program. Uh, <laughs> the reader is then told this does not, caps in the original, uh, mean that we accept the abduction claim. Hmm. So, yeah, they they, they withheld a, a conclusion and uh, said, uh, if the, the writer said, if and when the psychiatrist releases his findings or the hills give us permission to use them, we will report all available information. Nice. So. Um, yeah, so yeah they they, they begrudgingly uh, looked into that and that but it, l- later though uh blocher got involved with them uh, much later and uh, they 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 turned around they they started reporting on uh, humanoid reports I think that was after Blue book folded and they were dying their slow death
0: um UFO injuries are, are, are interesting because they seem to start at a certain point, and they definitely seem to be more in like South America and stuff like that.
2: Well, yeah, yeah Well, that was um, Pratt. What's his first name? Ken Pratt. Uh, yeah, he wrote a he wrote a book about it, "A uh, Terror and Death in Brazil." I, I believe it's called. He was uh, actually a really thorough investigator. He, he but he he worked for the National Enquirer, so he had a paying gig with them. But his investigations uh, were really good. Yeah, UFO Danger Zone, Bob Pratt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Terror and Death in Brazil. Where next? Uh, yeah, I mean those uh, that 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 was all in the nineteen seventies though. That that, but uh, the stories are just horrendous and yeah. bizarre. Like people being uh, pulled up by them is a, a very common report. Like one guy grabbed on the, to a tree and he was pulled up and then the, apparently, you know, the, the tractor beam or whatever, uh, wasn't powerful enough. And he slid back down the tree and then he was pulled up again and he slid back down the tree. So he had these horrible abrasions all over his chest. And yeah, that, that, that's a, a I recommend that book. It's, uh, really amazing. But um,
0: but you gotta wonder why like South America has these more. Uh, violent UFO encounters when other places don't like. What? Wh- why the difference? You know?
2: Yeah. I. And, uh, it's interesting. I mean, it's you know, you could say it's cultural. Or you could say it's because they have a a strong uh, shamanistic um, uh, aspect to their culture. You know, with, with the uh, indigenous population. I, mean, I you're aware of uh Alan Stevelman's uh, Witness to Another World?
0: Yes. Oh, absolutely. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So. You know, he makes that tie directly, but yeah, but it's all of a sudden in America though. In 1964, uh, people started getting zapped and burned by uh, <laughs> during their encounters. Yeah, and yeah, I, I wrote about that in uh, chapter 16, overt contact. I, I titled it uh, "Overt Contact," which I think was, uh, yeah, I got that from an article in the uh, U- NICAP publication, the UFO Investigator. My uh, particular I I think it's kind of horrible to say favorite, uh, but one I found extremely interesting is uh, the case of James Flynn. He he was, uh, yeah, this uh, March 17th, I guess it was uh, 1965, yeah. He was uh, a 45-year-old rancher from Fort Myers, Florida, and he walked into a local ophthalmologist's office. Uh, The area around his eyes were swollen. Uh, His right eye looked like a bloody marble uh so this guy was messed up and uh, according to him on Friday March 12th he uh he set out uh for the Everglades on a hunting trip <laughs> so uh, a guy's going out alone in the everglades he was driving a swamp buggy uh with four dogs so this is a tough guy <laughs> you know to, to to be willing to spend you know he spent three days there yeah uh, well it was actually no I think it was four days but you know to the prospect of spending, you know, an extended period of time in the Everglades with all the alligators, et cetera, is just, uh, and that that's a special breed. Yes. Uh, <laughs> but, um, yeah, so uh, his dogs took off, and he went looking for them in a swamp buggy. I had uh, three took off, and he had one in a cage with him, and he uh, saw a bright light. Uh, above uh, some cypress trees it moved back and forth and then then descended uh, and then remained hovering about four feet off the ground he got out his binoculars uh, he kept on driving until he was about a quarter mile of the way a uh, quarter mile away uh, He turned off his buggy lights so he can get a better look and he described seeing this uh, cone-shaped object with a rounded top and he estimated it to be around 30 feet tall, twice as wide at the base, estimated based on the surrounding cypress trees. And it seemed to be made of pieces of metal, four feet feet by four feet, held together by rivets, uh, had rows of windows uh, from which emerged a yellowish light. And he said an orange-red glow was underneath. He he watched it for about half an hour, uh, then started up the buggy, got closer. He got within a few yards of the lid area, turned off the motor and lights. Uh, the dog started freaking out, gnawing at the cage, and he walked to the edge of the object, and uh, the, the edge of the light, and he waved. Uh, <laughs> so instead of uh, humanoids waving back, he said, a short beam of light shot out from below the, the windows. It hit him in the forehead and knocked him unconscious. So he came to 24 hours later. He... he had no idea it had been that long. Uh, so the dog had nearly destroyed the cage, and he saw marks around the buggy indicating that he had crawled around it. Yeah. So and he he managed to get back to Fort Myers. He was blind in his right eye, had blurred vision in his left. And it took him until 4 p.m. on Wednesday to arrive. And when he got to the doctor's office, it was then that, that he realized that it was 24 hours later than he, than he thought it was. So the thing is, is that all these people vouch for this guy's credibility. His personal physician had known him for 25 years, and he wrote a letter to APRO saying uh, he considered uh, Flynn to be a reliable, emotionally stable individual. But the the really cool thing about this is uh, he was also vouched for by, uh, I think, a police chief. Uh, but what's really cool about this is that he went back, he took a, a local... Uh, uh, oh, yeah. NICAP looked into this as well. Uh, yeah, the sheriff uh, vouched for him. And, but he, he they went back to investigate, I think, with the NICAP member. And you know, what they described was uh, these scrape marks down the trees uh, that seemed to go for about four feet and then just stop. Uh, and the tops of the cypress trees were burned. And there was a big, I think, 75-foot burned circle. Yeah. so that it, it, it's a pretty awesome case
0: yeah and and again it fits in that high strangeness thing like you know why why did this particular thing hurt him when when normally they don't hurt people
2: yeah exactly
0: um see we got time for another story but it, it's
2: also know? another another thing that that strikes me a bit cause about all these cases that is that they there are me- should be medical. Re- I think that the, the investigators at the time really dropped the ball and didn't get the medical reports. Yeah. Uh, or any photocopies of the medical reports. And so I couldn't find them in, in the uh, the files. So I think that's a, a, a big thing that just got missed.
0: Absolutely. Um, so someone I wasn't actually that familiar with until I read your book was McDonald. And he seemed yep. to really push a lot of stuff forwards. Uh or at least yeah, try to
2: yeah and uh he, he you know he came to a a, a nasty end yeah but it, i basically I, it it's he became uh, obsessed with the subject and traveled around and lectured a lot and that put some distance between him and his wife and she ended up having an affair and they ended up i uh, think they divorced he also he was a prominent atmospheric physicist and he got interested in the subject in, I think, 1958. He lived in Tucson, Arizona, and he, yeah, 1957. Yeah, he was a, a uh, no, 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 that's Handruffel. Excuse me. That's right. Uh, <laughs> yeah, 1958. He started investigating, and there were a bunch of uh, sightings in the, his uh, in Tucson. So he he put the word out at the. He started, you know, finding uh, witnesses and talking to them. And the, the word got out that, you know, here's a guy that will listen to you if you tell him you saw something. Right. So he um, he stuck with it. Uh, but he was kept it quiet. But in uh, 1966, once the word was out that the uh, Air Force was looking for somebody, to, uh, a university to do a study... Uh, basically, after being hauled in uh, front of Congress, and this is the uh, the Michigan uh, Swamp Gas episode where yeah. Alan Hynek yeah was taken, to, well the Air Force was taken to, to task. Gerald Ford was the Michigan representative at the time uh, and the House Minority Speaker, and he was really upset by uh, Hynek's uh, explanations and thought they were flippant and urged uh, a a couple of groups to – a couple of committees, uh, uh, you know, you guys should hold hearings on this. Uh, I think it was the Senate Arms Services Committee. I ended up holding the hearings. But um, in any case, uh, the result of the hearings was Congress being told that a a scientific research committee had recommended to the Air Force that they – have uh get a university study going an independent study essentially they said well yeah yeah we're we should do that we should so that they they in front of congress said that they uh were thinking of taking uh taking the committee's advice and uh actually getting a university to do a scientific study and then uh, since they, it's on the public record they were under pressure to actually follow through on that and that Resulted in uh, the infamous uh, Condon Committee at the University of Colorado. Right. Uh, so that was 1966. The word got out, and at that point, uh, McDonald decided uh, that he would uh, go public uh, because uh, saucers all of a sudden got a an air of respectability.
1: Mm.
2: He was hoping to uh, get a grant from the National, uh, from the NAS. Uh, i think the national academy of sciences mm-hmm. it fell through because they thought that well you know if uh, it would it would look bad if it looked like they didn't have faith in the air force funded study or the air force uh, it, it would look like they didn't have faith by giving this guy a grant to do his own research so his grant fell through but he was working with the uh, office of naval research he was he was having He was being funded by the office of naval research his contract monitor jim hughes he had written to jim hughes saying that um yeah he was he understood that he was on a list to uh help with the study uh but he had had a run-in with the air force earlier uh, because uh, they were going to put up missile silos upwind of tucson and he got together with Barry Goldwater and the, who was the governor at the time, and I, I think, and um, uh, the mayor of Tucson, and uh, took the, uh, you know, tried to get the Air Force to put the silos downwind. Uh, they failed, but the result was that uh, from then on in, the Air Force put the silos downwind of uh, major cities. So he thought this put him on the. Uh, didn't have him sitting in favorably with the Air Force. So he's probably not going to be uh, a guy they came to, to uh, look into the subject scientifically. But Hughes wrote him back saying they were interested in uh, what they called remote sensing of the atmosphere. And he suggested that laser observations of anonymous clouds could help clear up some unidentified reports. And he asked McDonald if he could use some of his spare time and look at the Blue Book files and give uh, the Office of Naval Research an Assessment based on the data. And because he would be working on the uh, OR's behalf, uh, Hughes told him uh, he could travel charge his travel expenses uh, to his contract. Mm-hmm. So McDonald was off to the Project Blue Book offices. Well, what happened was he was given access to the files, and he went through the files, and he, he was appalled by some of the explanations in the files, you know, such as uh, marsh gas, ball lightning, uh, right. Venus, uh, the whole rigmarole. And he also saw that J.L. and Hynek uh, had signed off on a lot of these. Uh, so he... Took Heineck to task for this. He, he he set up a meeting with Heineck. Their first conversation was him telling, uh, you know, uh, Heineck praising APRO and him praising uh, McDonald praising NICAP. McDonald's actually a member of NICAP, which is not publicized at all by NICAP. Or it, it doesn't show up in the uh, newspaper accounts or anything. I actually had to – it's mentioned – I think APRO mentioned it once in the bulletin that he was an ICAP member. Uh, but they they, they kind of didn't play that up. I, I actually had to get that confirmed. Uh, I think uh, Barry Greenwood confirmed that for me. But they, they really didn't talk about that, which I found interesting. Yeah. But yeah, but uh, so – McDonald was a nightcap man. And what's interesting is, APRO was based in Tucson at the time, and McDonald just, uh, there's no association between them. So uh, it's interesting. There might have been whether there was any kind of rancor between them or not. And I couldn't uh, get any information on that, but that's intriguing. But in any case, Heineck was an APRO man. And I McDonald was a NICAP man, so from the get-go, they were basically at odds, because Heineck didn't see think much of uh, NICAP, especially you know being under contract with the Air Force, and NICAP just hammered the Air Force and hammered him incessantly. But in any case, they made arrangements to meet at a Northwestern University, and McDonnell went out to Northwestern University, where at the time, Jacques Vallée was working there as well. Heineck had alerted Vallée to a job uh, for a uh, computer systems programmer, uh, and Vallée took the job because he wanted to work closely uh, with Heineck. And to, that's where they started what's been known as, uh, called the Invisible College.
1: Right.
2: But Heineck wrote about the first meeting uh, in uh, Forbidden Science, Uh The edition covering that period and uh, McDonald just laid in the Heineck and Soleil stepped up and defended him. And, yeah, uh, I really called him out and said, you know, as a scientist, basically, you should be ashamed of yourself. You know, why don't you come forward? Well, Heineck actually did afterwards. Heineck started coming out in the press more favorably towards uh, flying saucers, UFOs at that point. Um,
0: and it seems like he did that. He did that with like, uh, the guy running project blue book as well.
2: Uh, Hector Quintanilla.
0: Yeah. I don't know how to say mm. his last name. Like he's just very blunt with people. He doesn't pull his punches.
2: Yeah. I think it's actually Quintanilla. Quintanilla. Okay. Uh, he, he shows up on, uh, UFOs. It has begun the, the Rod Serling, uh, narrated documentary, oh, okay. which has its own, um, okay. strange backstory, but that's another rabbit hole. <laughs> um, but, uh, I say, I, I'm so used to saying Quintanilla. It, it sounds far more Spanish. But in any case, um, they had, McDonald was really hammered on uh, Quintanilla, uh, especially for his handling of the uh, Dale Spar case. Dale Spar and his uh, partner chased a UFO from Portage County, Ohio for 86 miles all the way into Pennsylvania. Yeah. And. A whole bunch of other police joined the chase and there are all sorts of witnesses, it, basically a metallic craft. Uh, it started late, uh, fourth, it started 4 30 AM. And as the light came up, uh, spar reported that he could make out an actual metallic object with an antenna. And this thing seemed to slow down let them catch up and then take off again. Let them chase it. Can Quintanilla came up with the explanation that they had seen a satellite and yeah. then their eyes followed it and locked on the Venus and that they chased Venus all the <laughs> way into <laughs> Pennsylvania. His, he, he interviewed, he first called Dale Spar, and his opening remark to Spar was, uh, tell me about this mirage you saw. And yeah. they talked to him for two and a half minutes, then called him again and talked to him for one and a half minutes. Uh, and then called later to the, you know, and I think he gave the police chief uh, the explanation. And uh, it's reported that the uh, police chief laughed out loud. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, and a stink was raised by by uh, local officials uh, there and uh, all the Got, went all the way up to the pentagon they said send somebody down there and do a proper investigation so that somebody was kitania <laughs> so he did due diligence and interviewed him on t- you know had him fill out a questionnaire and then stuck to the satellite and venus story
1: yeah
2: so this was in the record and uh yeah mcdonald uh, in particular hammered him on that and As in mcdonald mcdonald kept notes and uh, the mcdonald's story is told by ann Druffel, who was uh, started in, with NICAP in um 1957 and Druffel's book is like thoroughly researched she got access to mcdonald's notes and he kept all these little notebooks with him at all times and made little notes so she had access to that and in his notes, he just writes about just being completely bewildered at Quintanilla's stubbornness to stick to that explanation despite the report. Uh, but, yeah, they—they they, it got heated. He got into a big fight with uh, Quintanilla to the point where the secretary got upset and ran out of the room. <laughs>
0: uh,
2: well, uh, Valet described him as a bull in the ch- china the kind of shop. shop. Yeah. And I kind of got the impression that he might have been a bit manic-depressive.
0: Oh, okay. Um, Well, we are out of time for this. Uh, Are you okay sticking around for a Patreon segment to finish a couple of these?
2: Yeah, absolutely.
0: All right. Uh, Where can people find you
2: online? Well, I write a weekly blog for Martin Willis at podcastufo.com and uh, do an audio blog version of that as well and post it on his YouTube site. And the books at Amazon.com, uh, audiobook, Kindle, hardcover, softcover. Yeah. And uh, I think you can find it at uh, flyingdiscpress.com as well.
0: And you are Charles Lear, and the book is The Flying Saucer Investigators.
2: Okay, well, thank you so much. has been a pleasure talking.
0: I want to take a moment here to thank all of my Patreons. Without you, this show wouldn't be possible. And I especially want to shout out to those pledging $10 or more. Allison Cook, Super Informans, 36 Dingo, Chuck Shudders, Leanne Sherry, CJ, Tim, Andrew Nichols, Matthew Sproul, Christine, a blue second-gen MR2 drifting around a Japanese mountain, Patricia Gaya Quinta, Alex Whitcomb, American Rambler, Andrew Maines, Barbara Fisher, Beverly Williamson, Big Boy Limina, Charles Davis, Charles in Florida, Land of the Crazy and Communicable, Christopher Ernst, Craig Cicernos, Craig Parmenter, Crystal Ann Compton, Diane B., Duffy Dowder, Edu Camahort, MTK, Eric Citron, Eric Todd, J. Otto Bullet, James Lattimore, Joanna Rojas, John Bracken, Carla Mahoney, Kevin, Kevin Shrek, Cool Kitty, Kristen L. Laser Printer Jam, Lynns Jackson K, Luke Osborne, MJ Armstrong, Jim and Sophie, Mark Bowley, Mark Brady, Matt in Delaware, Patricia W. Paul Jeffries, Ray Benedetto, Riker and Stark, Ron Duprey, Sam Sharon, Stone Wilderness, Tactical Therapist, Taylor Bell, Thunderboy, Tyler Glimstead, Vincent Trewell, Walker, Will Gebhard, Will Powell, Ren Collier, Stephan D, and Amber Hall. Thank you all so very, very much. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Charles Lear. There is a Patreon segment, so Patreons will be getting that later in the week. Um, If you want to become a patron, it really helps out the show a great deal. It's only $3 a month, and uh, you can go to 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 com and just click on the big Patreon uh, graphic to get there. Uh I really appreciate all of my patrons and uh you get extra stuff pretty much every week. Sometimes more than once. There's also merch and stuff on the website, uh links to all the social media sites. Um yeah, pretty much anything you could want to find is can be found at go.com, including shows going all the way back to the very first one in January of 2013. We're coming up on 10 years this coming January. All right, I'm going to take you out with a song from Charles Lear. Uh, this one under the name Shadow Men, and uh, it has clips from L. Ron Hubbard in it. And this is called Watching the Sunrise." It's watching the sun rise. Two words. All right, I'll see you next time. <laughs> Thank you.